to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm Bea Eggard. And throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. So this month's series is all about promoting social change with communities and people living and working in urban informal spaces. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about COVID-19 and how travel and public health restrictions really presented challenges to ensuring that urban marginalized voices were heard by researchers and policymakers to make sure they weren't left behind. Our impressive guests today are going to talk to us about the importance of having established long-term relationships with people, communities, and supporting organizations. And that enabled research to continue and ensured that the needs of the people in informal urban spaces were reaching decision makers. But before we begin, let's welcome our co-host, Robinson Kruger. How are you today? Oh, very well, Kim. I'm joining you for from a very sunny Nairobi. Always a pleasure joining you, Kim. So I work for LV City Health and we do we implement community-based participatory research. So looking forward to great conversations and hanging out with you. Thanks, Robinson. And remember, listeners, uh, last week we or, or a few weeks ago, so our guests, Sareka and Sabina, welcome. Sareka, how are you today? And tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, Kim, and hi, Robinson. Lovely to be with you on this podcast. Oh, a bit about myself, I think. I love dogs. That's my USP. I'm obsessed with dogs. I've grown up with them. Um, And I think they've taught me patience. Um, They've taught me love. Uh, They've taught me resilience, which are qualities you need um, when you work with marginalized communities in urban spaces, which is what I do. So, Rekha, tell us a bit about where you work at the moment and where you're based. Yeah, okay. Um, so, I work at the George Institute for Global Health uh, in India, based out of New Delhi. Um, so, that's where I am. Thanks very much. And great to hear you love dogs. Likewise, you're in good company here, I think. Sabina, welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, so I am a Dean and Professor at the Brack James P. Grant School of Public Health at Brack University in Bangladesh. To be honest, I would say when I think back, the other day I was reflecting on my life. It's just one of those moments you're contemplating, where are you going? And my life and my career has been sort of accidental. It really evolved organically and continues to kind of unfold in interesting ways because we have to do a lot of research And we end up spending a lot of time in communities. And I just find you kind of compare, you contrast, you understand and learn. So I feel like my life's been sort of an accidental adventure. And even being on this podcast is an accidental adventure for me. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. So we have some very interesting guests today, I can already tell. So, Sabina, let's stick with you and your accidental adventure. I think this is um, a good place for us to start. And um, I guess your accidental adventure and and the relationships you've built over your career and personal life suddenly changed when COVID-19 hit and um, those relationships uh, were impacted. And I know that you had a desire to make sure that uh, the voices of the urban marginalized were heard as soon as COVID-19 hit. 
So tell us a bit about your observations and reflections when that happened back in March 2020. I was just saying, you know, I was backpacking in 20, when I was 23, decided to volunteer back briefly, sent to a village for six months and never left Bangladesh. I was meant to go around the world. I don't know. Something came over me. I loved it. I loved, you know, learning and spending time and I could still learn. I think COVID was very different because what happened with COVID, you know, you do research, you learn about communities, but you kind of you kind of take, there's a taken for grantedness sometimes when you do field work or research or life. You take life for granted. I think COVID, at least for me, because COVID happened in my lifetime. You know, I heard about the liberation war of Bangladesh, but I was born. I was just a couple of years old. Everything kind of stopped. It was like time stood still. And there was like, it wasn't watching global wars. It was just watching an entire, you, you felt like the whole world was collapsing and then we were in the middle of research. We were working with communities and there was emotional, mental, spiritual, all kinds of responses to how do we get the research out there? How do we kind of talk about the lockdown? How do we talk about it's not about COVID and disease only. That's for me who sits in my apartment with my computer. What about the poor? You've shut them down. They don't have money. They don't have jobs. They're worried about food. What do we do? And I remember because I, you know, I had a school. I, you know, frankly, it was just kind of a uh, 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 trial and error. Who do we call? Let's get a list of phone interviews. We know these communities because we've been working for, uh, in many places for a long time. We have databases, data setups. Um, you couldn't go out anywhere. There was a complete shutdown March 2020 for about three and a half months. But um yeah, the first thing was we got to feed into government. We need to feed into NGOs and civil society because that is the nature of the School of Public Health. It is not just academic research, but applied evidence. And we needed quick, rapid assessments, like phone interviews were the way to go and trying to figure out the nuances and the challenges and the limitations. But it was still evidence and we were familiar with communities, so it wasn't just going into a completely unfamiliar context. I think that's important to kind of flag. The context was familiar. It was just phone interviews and recognizing the limitations of that, but it was still giving us evidence. Yeah, so that's some of my initial kinds of thoughts that went through. It was terrifying for me, so I can't imagine how bad it was or difficult it was for marginalized communities, army, police on the streets. I think that paints the scene very well for us in, in, in Bangladesh and, you know, that immediate understanding that the poor were going to be hugely impacted by this. And while the global conversations were happening, the community was immediately suffering. So let's move to India. Sareka, what were your observations initially in the India context? Well, I'm based, um, like I said, I'm based out in New Delhi. And New Delhi, um, the noise pollution is very high. So you're literally used to a lot of noise. And I think the first way that COVID-19 actually hit us here was um, the sensory experience of silence. Everything just shut down. It was silent. There were no vehicles on the road. And like Sabina had said, um, the, uh, the police was out um, everywhere. Um, so it... It didn't actually feel like a public health problem. It actually felt like we had something close to what we read about in terms of other places having 
martial laws where there are no people on the streets and just it's either the army or the police. In our case, it was just the police. So I think that was um, one of the things. But I think also it was like a whack on the the population at large, and I think for all the communities that a crisis can happen at any time. Uh, but what it normally means is that um, the different kinds of uh, vulnerabilities are added, and they all complicate the uh, existence of the poor who are seriously vulnerable groups. And I think one of their images of and, and uh, searing images we were seeing at the time was of um, migrant workers, mainly the poor, literally um, just, you know, putting everything, whatever they owned on their heads, in their bags, and just walking in the heat because March is quite hot in Delhi. And it was the same in literally across all the urban places. And the other thing I think was... Um, sort of very difficult was that we were not hearing anything about the rural areas. So while um, there are inequities in the urban areas, there's a larger inequity around what we understand about what's happening in the rural um, sites. And I think that is important for us as researchers because um, what happens or does not happen in rural areas impacts who are the people who come to the cities in such a world? So there is that connection which we don't always um, draw upon. So I think that is one of the things. I think the other um, extraordinarily difficult uh, thing that we had was about um, constant messages on phone, uh, phone calls from friends, family, but people we work with or know. Um, over the years, asking for help um, because it was hunger. And in our case, uh, we particularly work with the with waste workers and waste picking communities. Um, who, if they don't work for the day, there's no food on the table normally. Um, so it was like I, I think the the experiences were very different, and I believe that the. Um, Despite most researchers not wanting to discuss the issue of class in public health and in global health, it is there and experience is a class-based too. Um, so I think this is one of my, sort of in a, in a simple way, this is how I reflected upon um, my reflections of what the time was about. Thank you very much. And I think we've had four episodes in this series, which has been focused on urban areas. And I think one of the things that hasn't come across is that rural urban connection and what happens in rural spaces affects what happens in urban spaces. And thank you for, you know, kind of bringing out those vulnerabilities as well to help us understand that there is, you know, these vulnerabilities were really exposed. So I think we've set the scene very well here. So I'm going to hand over to Robinson now, who's going to help us understand a little bit more about the research aspect and how you manage to connect with communities in this really challenging time. Over to you, Robinson. All right. Thank you, Kim. And uh, just to inform our listeners that uh, Sabina and the colleagues that Sunny and Kim wrote a very powerful commentary uh, in 2020 in the BMJ Global Health. So 
The title reads, Towards a Socially Just Model, Balancing Hunger and Response to the COVID-19 Pandemic in Bangladesh. So it's a very interesting read, Sabina. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'll, I'll encourage our, our, our listeners to have a look at it. Uh, Sabina, I've also learned something very interesting about your backpacking days. Very interesting. So I'll start with you, Sabina. Uh, maybe please take us down history lane and share with our listeners how you established these long-term relationships with residents in informal settlements. Then I'll bounce to Suryaka. So I can start with you, Sabina. Sure. I promise not to take um, three days to explain what, what, what brought me to this. But really, you know, a lot of the things we end up doing in life or being passionate about is something that resonates with our heart. And when it doesn't resonate with your heart, you find ways around coming back to your passion. And for me, the urban slum kind of, or I shouldn't, well, informal settlements or urban residents or slums. I mean, there's PC and non-PC terms, but really they live in the most dismal conditions. And I, I say slums because settlements kind of makes it sound neater, more sanitized. But if you go to any settlements in Dhaka, they're diverse throughout the country. We're so densely populated. But my history of my relationship doing research, as I said, I was sent off to a village when I was 23 for six months and did, you know, spent time in communities. And it changed my life. It really did. I had no goals. I had no focus. I knew that I'd finished my undergraduate. So I felt very proud of myself that, hey, Dad, Mom, leave me alone. I've done my undergraduate and I'm going to go backpacking. And I was with my best friend, Kate. But um, I don't know. It's very subtle. I look back now and I think, where did all of this sort of relationship begin? And with slums or informal settlements and communities, really, we're talking about communities, whether they were live in rural or urban spaces, we're all part of a community. And I think over time, what strikes me is a shared humanity and COVID brought that to the forefront and shared kind of accountability. And when I started my work in, 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 in or history, if I had to dissect it, some of it just evolved because I spent time in communities and, and my research in slums. Most of it was done during my PhD, which was a long time ago. And I realized how much I didn't know. One. Two, they're not just a box of a poor people and what do you eat and what do you do and what interventions do you want? These are living, breathing human beings like you and me who have dreams and aspirations and worries and challenges and desires and joy. And it just made me think about shared humanity, except they're so much more vulnerable. So little voice, so little agency. And I just was uh, taken aback with how much I was humbled by how much I didn't know, I think, and my presumptions and my book reading and all my jargon and my literature just was kind of unpacked in a week in, in slums. You know, I'd just be like, so this is anthropology, but this is real life or this is public health, but this is real life. And my relationship has continued deliberately personally and professionally, just because the projects I've taken on where I'm very interested in urban spaces. And also because I personally have working relationships with some street children that I used to work with uh, since 2006. 
and they live in slums and they've grown up now and they have children. So it's a very weird space. But I think for me, it was a critical, reflective relationship. Uh, thank you, Sabina. That's very interesting. And how about you, Sereka? How did you go about building this long-term relationship? So we can uh, speak to the context of Delhi, for example. Yeah, okay. Um, so I think personally for me, uh, research uh, has been a calling, if I could say that, uh, because I am not a trained social scientist. I have a pure science and applied science and applied economics background. Um, um, but I think the thing I struggled when I was studying and I was young was I was constantly looking for the people, um, which is very hard to find, like Sabina said. Sometimes uh, disciplinary uh, requirements and eccentricities, I think, um, you know, sort of lay the ground for what is taught, what is not taught. I think the two things I just wanted to say that normally when we say long-term relationships, um, we tend to look at it like in, in terms of a time scale. Um, but I think it's important to remember that as humans, it is possible to build um, very good relationships, working relationships in times of crisis, like COVID was and still is, I think. So that's something I just want to put it out there. In terms of long-term relationships, I think it's not by it's by accident, like Sabina said. Um, most of us uh, ended up by accident in circumstances, I think. Your families moved somewhere, you have moved somewhere. Uh, and so you're trying to make a life where you are. Um, the only constant for me has been an obsession about um, uh, being in relationships, working relationships, friendships with other women in the cities where I stayed. So my long-term relationships, I would say, um, it is that. And I would classify that a little bit um, along the lines of, you know, these are fragile connections. So you have fragile connectedness. And important to remember that this connectedness is actually um, located in class differences among the women itself. And so that is how I started. So in, in a very strange way, not having heard the word reflexivity, not knowing what it was, is what I was doing when I was young. Um, it's later when I started reading around sociology and anthropology, I realized that there's actually a term for that, um, which I didn't know um, about. Um, the other thing I think relationships are contingent on um, what say, I want to learn as an individual and what I want to do. Uh, but I think relationships and the nature of them, they are contingent on what the communities where the research and work want them to be. Um, it's not a decision I can take. Um, and I don't think it's uh, that simple that you could frame something um, along those lines. Um, but just to say that I think in the last 20 plus years, um, I certainly have been uh, working, researching the different groups uh, with women, uh, but in urban spaces. And 
it's more happenstance because I live in a city or I have lived in cities. Um, so I, th- I think there are all these things that sort of um, decide what long-term relationships and what actually goes into those long-term relationships that you mean. Um, and I think also it's important that sometimes crisis um, like in COVID, is my experience, it allows you to connect with new groups of people uh, that may go somewhere, may not go somewhere, but maybe uh, they don't need to go somewhere because the, the purpose of that relationship um, is sort of satisfied with what's done in a particular time scale. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there. Mm. You said something very interesting, Sureka, especially around... Uh, you know, the fragile connections that sometimes exist in relationships. And I also touched on something around crisis, relationships in a crisis. Uh, so just staying on that uh, uh, line of, uh, of thread, so how does, how does this crisis of COVID-19 impact your relationships uh, with persons living in informal settlements? I think in terms of uh, my own connection and the research team that I'm part of, um, the connections uh, was was varied. Uh, some of us were already had, like I said, a connectedness and nascent friendships with people in the race-speaking communities. Um, so they could call us, uh, they could cry with us. Um, and I think... Uh, one of the other things was that uh, being bombarded with information. There was so much information, but most of it was not practical. It was not usable. How do you share this with the communities? Would they be so telling someone to wear a mask when they can't buy a mask? Because you have to buy the masks and get it to them. And so we did things like we said, till we're able to get masks, saris. Uh, cut them into five, you know, layers and stitch them up uh, and do it. So um, there was a lot of this sort of, so on the research side, you have all of this evidence and evidence is coming out in the form of advisories from governments, from other groups, et cetera, and so on. So that was one of the things. Um, but I think the thing that has stayed with me was um, how vulnerable the urban poor are that in a matter of days, they were in a situation where their dignity was slipping away because they had to ask others for food to eat. And these are uh, people who work and may, you know, manage their own lives in whatever way uh, they do. Um, but I think that slipping away of dignity is, I still struggle with it. Um, I have spent sleepless nights about it. Um, so I think that is one of the things. But having said that, I think one of the ways that my research team or dealt or even within the Arise Consortium we dealt with was that there was an understanding that research teams have to stand by the communities. So we switched from doing research, 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 but completely went into um, supporting the communities through food, medicines, uh, water, uh, seeing that their children are fed, um, and, and instead of literally just being on call. 
Um, and I think, you know, it, and a lot of this draws from sort of the more, um, what I learned as a young woman growing up as to what feminist ethics is and what feminist ethics research practices are. So I don't see doing this other work as not research. Uh, maybe, so you make choices, you decide who is your, you know, which is the, um, the community you will focus on at what time. I think in terms of data and policymakers, et cetera, and so on, just to be honest, we are a small group uh, in a large country like India. There's no one who's really going to listen to you at the top levels. And I mean, you know, that is the structure, right? Um, but I think it's then you take the decision, which is the best way uh, to work with the communities within your network, within the grassroots organizations that you are part of. Um, so I think... So should I, should I try and have a go at that very articulately well shared by Sureka? One thing about our work in the phone interviews that we had to actually do counseling of our colleagues on the phone because they were so affected by the stories that we're hearing in the interviews. And that was something completely unanticipated because you're kind of living in the stress and then you're hearing about the stress, right? It's only when you kind of sit down, you kind of think, oh, oh my God, that's a lot. And that was one thing that, you know, another thing that I think back now, it almost feels surreal, not for those who's... Uh, for people who COVID has magnified disparities and inequalities, magnified loss, emerging poor, as Sureka was saying, uh, those who are slightly doing better have gone back to extreme poverty or worse off or struggling. Those who had jobs have now reduced work hours, reduced income sources as it unfolds, right? And this is globally, locally, disproportionately. But I just wanted to say one thing that it struck me is that we actually got a lot done, even working online. I'm talking from a research perspective. I was quite surprised. I hadn't seen my colleagues for three and a half months in lockdown. It was literally on Zoom. We were rolling out research, discussing tools, talking about phone interviews, trying to discuss evidence, putting it into key messaging, calling journalists, setting up, you know, online sort of sharing webinars, uh, talking to Kim, you and Robinson and Sally and Sureka and saying, what do we do? What's going on in Kenya? What's going on here? And I was surprised by, I think that the strength of everyone just being able to keep going, at least in the research community. And, and, and I know it's overstated about uh, slum communities, and I hate this term, but I also think it's true. The resilience and the and and the practical ways that communities manage. I know that for Arise, we ended up working with BRAC, the NGO, to provide masks, to provide information. Because one thing that struck me was the biomedical public health nature of messaging, which didn't talk about the social fears, the religious fears, uh, the the fact that there were scared about starving or the hunger. Um, other than that, I don't know. It just seems like I learned a lot. But also, I feel like my COVID years, I mean, I don't even know if it's going to come back. 2020 and 2021, I've collapsed memories from there into this one big heap, if that makes sense. The research, that time, the stories. And it's almost like 
oh my God, are we going to go back to normal? Little do I think, so that's a personal, but I also go to, but you know, it's interesting, sorry, and I'll, and I'll end very quickly, is that within the informal settlements, they were far more back to life. They didn't have an option. As soon as last year, when factories were opening up, they were on the streets, they were working, they had to work. I still had the luxury of doing my Zoom calls till we officially were told this is stage like less deaths. You can now start going to your office. But they risked their lives every day. They were on the streets because they were like, we need to eat. You have the luxury of looking at COVID as a biomedical disease. We don't have that luxury. They didn't say it like that, but their lives demonstrated that. And I think... You know, I, I wrote about this, though, in my PhD about poverty. COVID just brought it all back to me again, saying, you know, we're just kind of living this cycle. And when Kim, Sally and I wrote that piece on a socially just model, Robinson, it just took me back, but us back to why our basic things remain so unequal. And it really requires a paradigm shift. And as opposed to, oh, wow, they're resilient. How about we change this paradigm and acknowledge that we really need to shift the siloed approach and stop talking about socioeconomic variables and recognize them as human beings who have a right to food, shelter, jobs, and we are all responsible and accountable with the state. Okay. Uh, all right. So maybe I'll come back to you, Sureka, but let me stay on a little bit with you, Sabina. There's, you know, staying on that article, I read it and it felt uh, like you've really captured the voices of the, the people living in the urban slums and rural areas, especially, you know, the statistics, the data you brought up about uh, 20% of uh, respondents in the BRACs in the survey had no food or 37% had no reserves for like one to three days. Uh, so how did you make sure that these, these vo- you, you brought in these voices to the years and to the policies at sub-national level and national level? So how... How did you go about that? You know, I, I, what, what do I do? I'm a professor. I teach. I do research. I, I'm responsible for sharing evidence, not only through peer-reviewed articles, but also in a, in a policy space, because I live in a country where you have to share evidence to at least push for policy or program or debates. Why in 2022, be it America or the UK or be Kenya or Bangladesh, why citizens' voices are muted. I think it's a political um, economy, but also something that I'm very passionate about. In the research that we do in Bangladesh, there are ways, there are successes, there are lessons learned. There are things, there are um, interventions that have worked. I think we keep reinventing the wheel. I think we mute evidence. I think we have a a data hierarchy where surveys become our go-to. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with surveys, but if we had more nuanced data, if we learned more from failures, if now when we're waiting for a COVID or anything else, what are the lessons learned? What we can, you know, there's a lot that can be done. And I think it requires commitment from professors, but also for us to work with communities, not for communities, (laughs) with communities, with practitioners, work across sectors, that is actually trying to at least get the evidence, which is informed by many different perspectives, but by the very communities that we seek to work with and, inf- and at least hopefully enable some, some kind of shifts or improvements. We can't claim 
to be doing any more than that because that would be unethical. What happened with COVID was it was a reality check, I think, for many researchers beyond our own groups as to how important they are, what is their influence, um, you know, what can you do and cannot do. So I think in the larger scale of things, um, um, how we, uh, particularly the team I am part of, decided was that we were going to focus where we could make a difference in the immediate space. So whatever evidence was being put across in terms of how to protect oneself, what to do, um, we were kind of translating it into the vernacular, into the local languages, work communities um, could see um, and learn fairly quickly. Um, so these are some of the things that we try to focus on in the immediate space. Um, and I think that is research. I think that is data too. And I think just to be, uh, I mean, it's just a reminder that while uh, we try and focus on changing policies, uh, you know, at different levels, including the international level, um, ultimately our core commitment is to the communities. And, and we should not lose sight of that. I think importantly, um, it was about trying to be able to bring center front the voices of the communities we are part of. So sharing ex their experiences wherever possible, you know, whether it was small group conversations through list serves. Um, there's a whole lot of um, ways in which um, one can share. Uh, Sally Graham, who is one of my colleagues, was the face on uh, news channels, on international news channels, um, and and you know so that sort of so we kind of uh, with our own skill sets we decided who would be doing what and what was the best. Um, the other thing was importantly was that we did our grassroots partners who are very crucial to the research that we do were completely part of these discussions were aware of it uh, and it's not like. The research teams went out and did. Uh, it is our grassroots partners who finally went out and did. So it was like that back support um, that we were um, providing. I think one of the interesting things in COVID that we felt was that we were actually able to uh, reach out to different sets of people to donate for uh, for us to be able to um, feed the communities. And it is still ongoing. It hasn't stopped. We started in 2020 and it is still ongoing. And I think it relates to what Sabina very clearly said, um, that this is not an event that starts and finishes for the poor. It is something they go through all the time. It's just that the burdens are higher now uh, because of COVID. Right? Um, and also, again, I just want to stress that Everything as researchers we do has, for us at least, I believe, has to be cognizant of uh, allowing the communities to maintain their dignity. Like um, Sabina said, this is not, uh, here we are, we are the saviors and we are giving you food. I don't think that is how, at least in the Arise Consortium, I don't think we work that way. Um, but I think it's important to put that out. Uh, this is not about us. It is about the communities. So, um, Robinson, I'll stop there. Yeah. 
th- thanks, Rebecca. That's a very powerful ending. And uh, Rebecca, Sabina, very engaging conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, so let me hand over to Kim for the next segment. Thank you. Wow. Thank you both so much. I just want to say a personal thank you for sharing such deep reflections and your open and honesty is really valuable for us and our listeners. And I think what comes across for me is your passion and that the your role is not a job. Your What you do for a living is is not purely because you get paid a salary and you have a job, but it's passion. It runs through everything in your life. It's It's you know, from a personal work level, it's 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 all as one. And I think it's really important to share that with our, our listeners. So, um, Sabina, what piece of advice do you think researchers need to think about when they want to establish meaningful relationships with communities and people? So I think it's very simple and goes back to the basics of we're all human beings, not objects to be studied. And I think we forget that with all the disciplinary silos and tools and designs. We are all human beings. So if you want to really learn, then show humility. I think we need to remember to be humble. We need to listen. We need to want to learn. And remember, we're always working with communities, not for them. Because unless we have that shift, um, I don't think anything can be meaningful, even friendships, relationships, if it's a, if it's a sort of that kind of a lens. So I do think, and it's a constant way of just reminding oneself and others that we're working and we have to have humility. Every time I go to the field, I have assumptions and they're like completely shattered. I learn something new. I learn a bunch of new things. So I would say humility, respect will build trust and you build those relationships that are meaningful and mutual and you both gained something really beautiful along the way. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sabina. So same question to you, Sareka. I think just seconding what Sabina said about uh, being respectful, um, realizing that communities have a lot to teach you. Um, and also, I think as researchers trained in different disciplines, I think it's important to be reflexive and interrogate what one understands when we throw around terms like poor, poverty, communities, gender, um, what that means, because that is where you will learn how to do research, I think. And I think that is exactly what Sabina was saying previously about that we need something more than numbers. We need to be able to connect with people uh, to understand them. Um, it's a big ask, but I think it's essential, I feel, for researchers um, that we do this. Um, and I think in terms of promoting meaningful, lasting relationships, it's hard work. It's, you know, it's not going to come to you simply because you're from a, you know, you're an upper caste or you're from a upper class or you have this education. It is not going to come that way. You just have to work hard and stand with them and learn with them. Um, and I think that's how, um, so that in, in two ways, it's about, to some extent, embedding yourself uh, and being part. Um, and I think this this talks to some of the, the debates that are still ongoing around what is evidence. And as Sabina said, 
you know, we like the objective because you can distance yourself, but it is in this objective you find solutions. So you have to. I mean, I personally, that is what I have learned, especially, like I said, coming from a pure science background and now moving where I'm applying participatory action research frameworks. It has been a long journey. Uh, but this journey, it's not because something is glamorous or being used more today, but it is because participatory action research makes more sense to me. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot today and I think our listeners will enjoy this. So listeners do listen to the other episodes that are, are featured in this series from Arise. And Sareka and Sabina, thank you for this wonderful episode. And we shall look out to hear more from you in the future. We will see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Kim.